0: and welcome to Conversations with William James College. Spirituality is a unique place where many turn in search of hope, personal meaning, and a sense of purpose. During challenging and uncertain times, people often rely on their faith to make sense of life's adversities and experiences, believe in something greater than themselves, even if it's not always present or tangible, and to remain optimistic and hopeful about the future. In a world marked increasingly by insensitivity, intolerance, faith and spirituality can serve as a motivational energy that animates the pursuit of a more socially just society and propel us towards social action and advocacy. The topic of our podcast today is spirituality, social justice, and social activism. The William James community explored recently this topic through a conference held here on campus, and today I'm fortunate to have two of the panelists From that conference, join me. I'm Dr. Nick Cavino, I'm the president at William James College. And my guests today are uh, another Nicholas, Dr. Nicholas Rowe, who is the Dean of Student Engagement and Associate Professor of History and Peace Studies at Gordon College, and historian of Atlantic cultural history whose teachings and research interests include identity formation and how communities use the past to form their identities along with how this fuels intergroup conflict. He also has more than 20 years of experience consulting with communities about cross-cultural, cross-racial, cross-ethnic reconciliation and pastoral counseling for reconciling communities in the United States and South Africa. And I also have Dr. Rab, uh, rabbi Victor Reinstein, who's the co-founder of the Nehar Shalom Community Synagogue in Jamaica Plain, uh, with his wife Mika and a congregational rabbi for over 30 years. Rabbi Reinstein is committed to interfaith dialogue with a particular interest in building bridges between Jews and Muslims. Uh, He speaks widely in interfaith contexts throughout the Boston area. So that's a pretty distinguished background that I've got here sitting (laughs) with me. Thank you gentlemen for for joining me today. Um, I'll tell you uh, also, I have a complex background. I'm a trained psychoanalyst. uh, So I come from a world where One of my leaders said, spirituality is the opium of the people. Uh, I also was a part of that opium uh, for eight years and spent time studying to be a Jesuit priest, not ordained, but uh, dangerously close, uh, scholastic for eight years. Uh, And I have an appreciation, I think, for uh, psychology that came from that experience. I'm sure that I became interested in this field because of the work that I experienced Uh, when I was working and living as a Jesuit. Uh, So thank you for for coming. Uh, And uh, let me begin by telling you a little bit about uh, a meeting that we had recently. So I went uh, and paid a uh, shiva call to one of my uh, faculty members who lost his mom. Uh, As I'm there, he tells me of his mom's experience uh, with the Holocaust as a prisoner. He himself had both a mother and a father who were survivors of the Holocaust. We had uh, a long time to talk about how he struggled with his parents' experience as the next generation. Some of the things that they talked about, very painful. Some of the things that they didn't talk about, very mysterious. Some of their uh, behaviors, very difficult because they came from a very, very, very difficult place uh, in their life. Uh, And it turns out that we had two or three other members of our community that had similar experience. Uh, We began to talk together just as colleagues, what was their experience like. I was interested, what should this generation, who are older, so all these folks in the room were in their 60s, they were not young people thinking about their folks that had passed. Uh, We were thinking, What's, the, what's our responsibility to the next generation of particularly mental health students? Uh, so I invited them to think about their experience in their families and to bring that experience to the community in a, a larger forum. Uh, with about three weeks notice uh, for this uh, discussion, we had 140 people come to the room. Mm. And I was among the youngest uh, in the room. Uh, these were not our students that came. These were people from the community who came to Listen and bear witness to this discussion and said afterwards. Thank you so much for bringing this to the public uh, Nobody talks about this. We've never talked about this in my family We've not talked enough about this in our community. These were people in their 60s many of whom were the next generation of folks Uh and so I walked away, and I'd also, by the way, been 20 years at a Jewish hospital. I worked at the Beth Israel for uh, 20 years in their psychology department, uh, where I didn't find this discussed very much among my colleagues. Uh, patients would talk with me as they came about their experience, uh, but not so much a collective uh, hospital-wide holding of this terrible uh, experience, not that many years before, right? So I'm interested in a couple of things. How do we metabolize traumatic events, do you think? Is that a unique situation? Is this uh, something that people typically do, Uh, not talk so much? Uh, How might we use our religious communities or our spirituality to aid folks in their uh, discussions and ability to articulate uh, painful and traumatic events? So, let me start with Nick a bit. Mm. Uh, What's your thought as a historian about that? And as uh, somebody who lived in South Africa, a different kind of experience, But Mm. uh, what are your thoughts? Wow, that's a
1: wide open place from which to start. Uh, Thank you for for inviting me to this context, by the way. I I greatly appreciate the opportunity to share. Um, So, um, as you indicated, I've, I've, I've been involved in uh, peace studies work and, and essentially teaching on that uh, for a good 20 years for the most part um, initially uh, connecting primarily because I'm a person of African descent living in the us right I mean that that in and of itself has a has a long narrative a long 300 400 year narrative uh, connected with that um, and I think that the the, the issue is, and I mentioned the sort of 300, 400 year discussion, because as a historian, one of the things that you pick up when you're involved in this work is that um, if you don't go back to the roots of the initial conflict, if you don't go back to the um, initial place where it all began, so to speak, um, I think it becomes very, very limited. Your your ability to to resolve it completely is is very very limited. Um, one of the things that um, I've appreciated over the years in terms of working in this space, and and you mentioned this comment before, just this sort of the, the classic Marxist line, you know, spirit trial to the people. But uh, as a person of faith myself, we we are integrated persons, body, mind, and spirit, mm-hmm. and a lot of the dimensions of trauma, particularly historical trauma. Um, There is physical and trauma and everything else like that and the mental thing, but it's deeply spiritual, right? We we are people created in God's image according to classical Christian spirituality, created in God's image. And when that when that inherent dignity becomes affected, it affects it affects the whole person and then becomes generational. Uh, it, and the ways in which this transits, you know, only now recently we're beginning to understand that there are physical dimensions to it. There is some work now saying that the, the DNA gets altered. Um, one of the ways in which I've understood this very well, for instance, is recent discussions about the Uh, Cambodian community up in Lowell, Mm -hmm. where they're seeing um, kids, eight, seven, eight, nine, and young teeth suffering classic PTSD symptoms, Mm -hmm. when in fact they've not been in situations that would warrant that. And Mm -hmm. so they're asking, where are they getting, where's the trauma coming from? And then you realize their parents were refugees from the Vietnam War, who came over, who never had a chance to really resolve some of these things and their actions got transmitted to their kids because the kids are picking up from them in a way that is universally classical. You watch, right? It's not necessarily talking you watch because they don't talk about it. And now they themselves see the world as a dangerous place and they're manifesting some of these Mm -hmm. symptoms. And so um, I guess just in a sort of a brief way to start the conversation, um, there needs to be a way to go back to the source and resolve that. Even, and, and I think in the context of spirituality, there are the means to do that. Um, there are the means to go back to the source of the initial sort of trauma and resolve it and to work through that. And so that it can come back down to future generations and be held in a way that's no longer defining them um, and imparting pain, but one that becomes uh, something that brought to the which they and some, they in turn can serve and help others
0: what's your thought about a meeting like that, and what it is that uh, inhibits, if that was a, an apt observation, folks talking more freely and openly about trauma
2: in the Jewish community? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My own experience has been that there is a fair bit of sharing um, and talking. Uh, Though I think that's relatively more recent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the, the perhaps um, reverberations of trauma as it's happening now is the dying out of survivors. Mm-hmm. And I think that with every death of a survivor, whether I knew them or not, simply hearing about them, uh, Creates almost a panic. Mm. This is the direct link. Mm. um, They're leaving. And where the next link? Um, And what do we do with that? And um, I think there's, you know, it's an interesting question going back to the source. And and I, I feel I agree very much that we need to seek some kind of resolution. Um, in order to go on where there's trauma. But as I look at the Jewish experience of trauma, going all the way back, Mm. and then more specifically the Holocaust, I don't want to let go of it. And it terrifies me, the thought that it could be let go.
0: So what's the fear that that you have as you see it? Maybe at risk.
2: Um, it's in in part. It was such a horror that if we forget it, if we try to put it aside, then I think we we are in danger of not having learned its lessons. And I don't think we have learned its lessons. Mm-hmm. And and if we try to let go of it, and not to integrate the events into ourselves, then we also fail to integrate their meaning. Mm -hmm. And the other part of it is simply the honoring of memory. Mm -hmm. Um, I've known so many survivors um, in my life, and worked with so many, and learned from so many, some very close, some... Um, as people, um, certainly those I didn't know personally, but many that I've known personally, and I feel a duty to honor their their memory. Their greatest fear was to be forgotten, mm-hmm. and that what happened to them would be forgotten. And I feel that this need, far from being put aside, it needs a, a, a liturgical context virtually uh, to ensure The transmission of memory of what Mm -hmm. happened, and at the same time, in creating a framework to remember, also including the tools to transcend victimhood Mm -hmm. um, and to be empowered as transmitter, carriers, and transmitters of memory to be able to create a
0: world in which we have learned. So lessons. lessons, yes. So there's a there's a tension. I wonder about holding that history. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, uh, my grandfather came from Italy, and uh, uh, I'm the eldest in that family. My dad would bring me on Saturdays to go play bocce with all the old men in the alleys uh, mm-hmm. and drink the lousy wine uh, mm-hmm. that was there. Um, And my grandfather was very adamant about them not speaking Italian uh, Mm. and would yell. I remember him saying, speak the English, speak the English, right? Mm. So there's a, it seems, a tension. So you think about the various pieces of trauma that uh, that we are familiar with, right? So slavery is one of those pieces that we speak about and then we don't speak about. How do we hold it? The Holocaust, one of those things I felt. I actually felt that sense of responsibility to those folks when I invited people to come and talk. I don't know that the next generation down does feel that sense of responsibility as a larger group. I don't know as people get more distant from slavery uh, you listen, as I did recently, to tanishi uh, Coates. He's like right there with mm-hmm. us, and it's today, and it's about economics. It's mm-hmm. about the Harvard mm-hmm. uh, uh, issue about uh, affirmative action. It's very, very vibrant for him. not sure that that's the same for a lot of folks of color in there. So is there that? Is, is there a tension, maybe a healthy tension, maybe a not healthy tension, between let's move beyond so that we can integrate into the current uh is there verses, or in addition, hold on to what we need to respect and we need to continue to learn from? Mm. <laughs>
1: this, is, uh, this is a complicated matter, and, and I speak as a historian, um, who literally, as I'm speaking to you, one of the biggest concerns that I have is that within our discipline, Um, we're finding that, and these are other forces at work, particularly in terms of higher education, right? Moms want, moms and daddies want their kids to be able to get a job when they graduate. So they're not history majors. Right. Um, and a lot of higher education programs because they want to be efficient with costs are kind of eliminating the context within the core curriculum where you look at the past Mm -hmm. and really engage it. Um, Meanwhile, we look at our society now, particularly with a lot of the strains that it's dealing with, and you can see that there is very little historical reflection. We, and, and, and Western society as a whole, um, uh, particularly coming out of the sort of Enlightenment, quote, revolutionary tradition where, you know, the past was sort of holding us back, we, we tend not to treat the past with a whole lot of respect anyway. We have a predisposition toward that. So, we're sort of working against the grind. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Rabbi Reinstein was right on target to, to you know, it's an old hackneyed phrase those who don't remember the past, don't forget it. Well, you know, it's a hackneyed phrase because there's a lot of truth to it. Mm-hmm. I think also, too, at the same time, and I, and I speak a lot about um, it, particularly within the American context. The structures that were put in place that perpetuate systemic oppression, particularly for people of color, but as we've also seen for members of the Jewish community as well, we can't forget the recent events taking place in Pittsburgh and other places where you've seen increased occasions of anti-Semitic behavior going on and things like that. But the structures that were put in place in the origin of the American Republic, um, and even predating that right during the colonial era, which intentionally set up legal and economic things that that gave privileges to one racial group compared to groups outside of that structure, um, they still operate. They were intentionally put in place. And And I'm a historian, I have the receipts, as my friend would say, right? (laughs) I can show you the evidence where within colonial law, it would say that, you know, regarding people with indentured servitude, from this point forward, if you're a person coming out of the African context and they define them by color, color, your servitude is... Durante Vita, for the rest of your natural life, and all descendants, whereas others were not. Mm -hmm. And you can look through American legal discourse and see these various ways in which, um, particularly people of African descent, were marginalized. Well, if you were born into this, and you were raised into this, those structures are still there. They may have been moved off the books legally, but culturally it became a norm, right? I mean, these laws I talked about were the 1600s, but they become a norm and you're born into that and you're affected by that, but you don't know, you're not aware that it's in the air you drink. I Mm -hmm. I tell my students it's like asking a fish what it's like to be wet. Mm -hmm. Well, they really can't tell you if they've never been out of the water. Mm -hmm. So one one of the responsibilities I feel as a historian is to try to get my students out of the water, to get them to sit back from the context which they take for granted and to see, oh, so here are these things at work. I mention all this because we don't learn these things in schools, and so we take the world that we're born in as a norm, that these Mm -hmm. are the things, this is the way things always are, and they are not going to change. And we forget why they're there in the first place, so that when we see expressions of dissatisfaction with the structures that are in place, that arise, and they tend to do it quite clockwork every 20 years. You can check American history with regard to people of African descent. Every 20 years, it starts popping up. And folk who are asking themselves, "Where, where is this all coming from? And why don't they just get over it? And slavery was 300 years ago. You don't, it, you know, it's so easy to not see that those structures are still in place because they've never been addressed at the source and confronted. Mm-hmm. And because we grew up in these structures and they become part of our identities, it, you, you, it's not just a matter of, oh, well, we'll just act like racism doesn't exist. You need to go deeper than that. You need to really see how you're operating within these things to, you know, as to, to take the benefits, to take to to enjoy the privileges, or to not see the privileges from the outside, it takes much deeper work to address things that you're sort of born into, as opposed to things that can happen within your context and within your lifetime. So, um, so this is the fear. The fear that I have is that we've already forgotten, right? We've forgotten for a long time. You know, we go, we, we read things, cursory things in history, but we think, oh, we're not like that. Nah, I don't think so. I think there's ways in which we've already forgotten, um, so that it doesn't challenge our perceptions of how racial structures operate, how ethnic structures operate, and and it's not just an American thing. You see this in other sorts of oh, places sure. around the world as well, right? Sure. Um, you know, being in I know friends from Ireland and Northern Ireland, for instance, and the fact that I'm a Catholic, boom, or I'm a Protestant, boom. And they don't question how that got to be the way it is. <laughs> you know?
0: So it's in, a, in effect like not looking at your own family of origin mm. in a way a psychologist would invite people to reflect and say, well, let's just take you as a 28-year-old now yeah. and think about moving ahead to the future and not worry about the values, the experience, the main characters that you live with. But you're not love, just talking to a twenty eight year old. You're talking to his parents, his
1: yeah. great grandparents, parents, his great great parents, his great you're asking a person to really do that work. And yeah, some places inaccessible, but 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 there are is enough evidence to look at some of these things and the way that they're still at work generationally yeah. down the
0: So again holding the uh, it's the tension between remembering and the importance of remembering and the work of remembering Mm -hmm. and the desire to forget so that one can move on in an imagined way as if one could move on. Your Mm -hmm. argument would be you really can't uh, unless you Mm -hmm. understand the water that surrounds you. What's your thought Um,
2: about this? I, I would frame the tension, I think, slightly differently. I think, I think there's a negative tension, which is between remembering or forgetting, remembering or, or assimilating into a dominant culture. That, to me, is a, a completely negative um, tension. I think the positive tension is remembering the trauma and drawing on the deepest wells of meaning In one's own story, in one's own tradition, and holding both of those. Um, And in Jewish life, memory is sacred. It's ritualized. Um, uh, On Shabbat, every week, we remember the Exodus from Egypt, which is remembered liturgically every single day, the slavery and the Exodus. On Shabbat, we remember The slavery, we also remember creation, each held liturgically. Mm -hmm. Um, And the day itself is a memory of the future. Uh, If we can speak of that as memory, it's a projection of the future, of a day that is all Shabbat, all a day, a time that is filled with Shabbat peace, and we hold both of those And the question becomes, how does one inform the other? Mm -hmm. And this is certainly true with Passover. Mm -hmm. Remember the slavery. Remember the exodus. As we look toward liberation on the grand scale. Mm. And I think, personally, that becomes, in real terms, a looking at... The scars and being aware of them, not trying to put it aside. We need to pass on the the stories, the narratives of what happened. So,
0: to a psychologist, uh, we would think uh, exposing uh, a client that trauma again is part of the healing process, right? Mm -hmm. So finding ways to introduce people back into that historical touchstone, Mm -hmm. that's important. Another would be uh, to name the beast. So kind of thinking about that from uh, a spiritual place, right? So uh, God gives Adam and Eve control over the garden by saying, you can go about and name everybody, not me, but you can name the things that would give you control. So putting words to emotions mm. and experience or help. So does ritual, is that what guides, uh, is that a vehicle, right? So the retelling of the narratives, the retelling of the story, the making of this uh, weekly event, a yearly event, a monthly event, uh, where we introduce each other, young people, back into the touchstone spaces that have been traumatic, and create ritual, make it safe, because there's a whole bunch of people thinking about it together, give it words. Is that part of how spirituality helps and aids folks that have been uh, victims of trauma? Mm -hmm. I'll just maybe use that for a moment
2: to finish a thought uh, from, from... Earlier, and that is, I think, in emphasizing the importance of remembering the trauma, it is also important, I think, to do it in a way that empowers. Mm-hmm. This is not to create a sense of victimhood, mm. but because there's a responsibility to remember it and to honor, there's something empowering oh. that one is a link in the chain of transmission and the other is equally to emphasize with remembering is the very teachings that were part of the lives of those that were destroyed teachings that reach out to all people that seek to create a better world connected
0: beyond our congregation absolutely and
2: to the whole world And it becomes the tension between universal and particular as a a critically important positive tension. But it's about holding all of that. And memory of trauma, therefore, I believe, can be turned into an empowering act. And as we express that liturgically, that becomes part of the empowering this is I, yours. I was
0: moved to at a bat mitzvah. We're at the end of it. So once again, I'm raised Catholic. This is not my tradition. I'm sitting in the back because I knew the uh, the family. And the rabbi at the end says to the two uh, young girls, come up and I'm going to pray over you as our people have done for thousands mm-hmm. of years. Mm-hmm. I have thousands of of years of course you've prayed rabbis have prayed over kids like this as they have moved into adult life for Diana wow what a powerful place I'm in as people are holding what also has the downsides and the tragedies to hold as well but very 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 powerful. So I'm going to say something that's a little bit controversial
1: and I don't know who's going to be listening to this but one of the uh, vulnerabilities, I think, of Christian communities within the US is that from the beginning, they have been connected with the um, the forces of dominance and control mm-hmm. in the US. The parts of the Christian church that have not been were Christians who are in the marginalized spaces and this is what my presentation was about mm-hmm. when I when we presented at this conference So, so, the, so um, bla- the black church is a classic case in point. So you, you talked about the narrative of the Exodus right in a way you know the black church um, and the communities that make up the black church identify with this very very. Mm-hmm. Our ancestors were slaves. Our ancestors were taken against our will from a con- place in the continent. We knew we came from the continent. Some of us are not sure specifically where. We have a general guess, guess, but we were brought across the waters into a place and made to do somebody else's bidding. We were instrumentalized to do things not because, not out of how God made us to represent himself, but to serve the purposes of somebody else. And so, and this, is, this time of year is Advent, which for Christians, globally speaking, is critically important. It's the beginning of the liturgical calendar for Christians because of the arrival of God in human form who made it possible to restore full humanity to those who choose to follow him. The context in which my ancestors had to work, live, attempt to to make meaning of life, we weren't given that opportunity. But the places where we (coughs) did find meaning and understanding and dignity was in the context of the Christian community there, where we knew we were made in God's image, we knew that he had sent his son. In order to restore relationship with him, those two things, frankly, make us infinitely valuable in ways that the world that our ancestors found us in did not
0: find value. It's a powerful message. Mm. A powerful message, held by yep. a community of people. Um, so I, we could do this for three more hours. <laughs> uh, I'm delighted that you folks joined us today. I. Uh, get the signal, we've got to stop. Uh, Thinking about a couple of take-home points, uh, clearly the importance of remembering Mm -hmm. for understanding today. Uh, We've not talked and I wish we had time to look at the immigration issue Mm -hmm. as another uh, Mm -hmm. holocaust, uh, trauma, uh, children dying, uh, because we aren't welcoming like we had been welcoming and what we would like to think we would be welcoming. And how are we holding those people as uh, as human beings? How's our country uh, holding itself as a place of refuge and welcome and, uh, and sanctity? Uh, but maybe another day, uh, the importance of ritual, the importance of finding ways to give expression and articulation, uh, both to lessons that need to be remembered uh, and to experience that needs to be shared uh, and passed on to the uh, next generation with understanding, uh, in a way. Uh, very powerful messages. Uh, very powerful messages. Good time of the year for those mm-hmm. messages also to come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you both gentlemen for your, uh, for your very good work uh, and you for your words. So, thank you. For you. you all thank most you. Most thank welcome. You. Please come back.